Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Pastor Nick Cady, and this is the show where every week we try to bring you something that is helpful and helps you understand theological concepts and principles in a way really that makes them accessible to, to everybody, right? So they're not abstract, but they're, they're really, um, you understand how they, they work out in real life, um, because I think that theology matters for our everyday lives. So that's why we do this podcast. I'm glad you're listening. Uh, today, I'm joined by Pastor Kellen Criswell. Hey, Kellen. Good to have you with us. Yeah. So, Kellen, um, we've known each other for a couple of years, um, and yeah. one of my favorite things about you is your uh, taste in music. What would you would you describe it kind of as a mix between uh, rap and country, or country music when they rap? <laughs> well, Yellow Wolf is one of my favorite artists. I don't know if you're going to get your podcast blasted now, and he's he's like country rap. But no, I mean my my deepest heart roots in music are definitely punk rock and hardcore. And uh, but then I I'm very versatile after that, and certainly including rap and hip hop and some outlaw country type of stuff, but hardcore and punk is my, is my home. Yeah, historically. Kind, of, kind of Florida Georgia line type stuff. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> country, pop country, you know? Right. <laughs> okay. So um, you're from the uh, state of Utah, which is like, you're, you're almost like a movie, right? So like city punk, Easy. but you, I guess are from Ogden, <laughs> which is, it's like the Fort Collins it, for, I'm just trying to put it in context for people here in Colorado. It's like the Fort Collins of Utah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know where people get off, but Ogden is known by Salt Lake folk as the, uh, the armpit of Utah. I think because it's geographically, you know, Utah kind of has that <laughs> chunk cut out at the top and that's where Ogden is, but it's also like, it actually surprised me when I was growing up. I won't go on about this, but when I was in the, actually in the straight edge and hardcore scene, uh, we would meet people from like the, the quote, roughest parts of Salt Lake, which is, you know, clearly that's a relative concept, mm. but they, I remember meeting people and people from those spots were like afraid to come up to Ogden. And we were like, what? Like, and it was like, we, we, we learned that we had lived in this, this horrible ghetto called Ogden our, and we, we just didn't even know that that's how it was perceived outside the world. But anyway, yeah, I'm a proud Ogden original <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm not quite sure I've ever been to Ogden, you know, so my, my view of Utah maybe needs to be expanded, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm of course biased, so I'm, I'll try and set those biases aside while we talk, yeah. but, that's um, right, <laughs> maybe you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and today, what we're going to be talking about, by the way, which we'll get to soon is something called missional ecclesiology. So we'll get into that in a second, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, I mean, I'll try to give the cliff notes, I guess. I'm originally from the great, the great state of Utah with the greatest snow on earth, as you know, Nick. And uh, <laughs> that's where I was born. Moved back and forth a ton, uh, mostly between Oregon and, and uh, Utah. Lived a bit in Idaho. Um, uh, got saved, came to the Lord um, after 10 years of a parent's divorce and all the drama that comes out of that and being a messed up kid and getting into uh, punk rock and through that into anarchy and through those things into militant veganism and all sorts of stuff there. But then dropping out of high school, living in Portland when I'm 20 uh, and Jesus finds me there, saves me. And uh, from there, it was, it was really just a short couple of years before I got into my first expressions of vocational ministry initially with youth ministry and some things like that. 
and uh, met the lady who would become my wife, uh, Jen. And uh, we've we've been married for 16 years and mm-hmm. uh, we've got two kids. We've got um, one of one. Our daughter will be 13 just in a couple of days here. And then our son is nine. So, yeah, that's kind of my the personal side. I can give you ministry or yeah. educational, whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. Tell us about your education side. It's the educational side. Um, yeah. So I, like I said, as a high school dropout, <laughs> we'll start there. Like, uh, you know, most Calvary pastors of, of times past, but um, yeah, I mean, I was a high school dropout, came to Christ, got into ministry. And one of the things that I discerned um, early in my ministry and Christian experience was um, I came across where Paul told the Tim to said to Timothy, that he needed to study to show himself approved. And um for me, I knew that without the accountability of payments and deadlines, I just wasn't going to do that at the level that I needed to. So I started um, looking around for schools that were affordable, that were into expository preaching, because I had picked that up, up as a value from a Reformed church I was a part of at the time. And so I think I Googled that and Calvary Chapel Bible College came up (laughs) and and I didn't really know anything about Calvary. And it was like 50 bucks a credit hour at the time. So I was like, shoot, I'll do that. So I started there, got, um, well, real quick before that, after my conversion experience, I did go back and get the GED and then go to an adult ed program and get a diploma so I could join the Navy and I got discharged. And that's a whole other thing we don't have time for. But anyway, so got the high school diploma got into Calvary Bible College, did the two-year correspondence program. And um, so I got an Associates of Theology, I think it is. And then uh, that's all I did for almost 10 years. And then I just came to a point in life where because of some things I felt like God was saying to me about my future that I needed to do more. And that's still kind of how I think about higher ed is it's not for everybody, but it is for you if it's what's required to get you where God wants you specifically to be. Hmm. So I went back and I went to... um, school called Faith, now it's called Faith International University up in Tacoma, completed a bachelor's arts and religion there. From there, went on to um, seminary. I got a master of arts in global leadership, which is in the nature of our topic today, a lot of that had to do with the study of mission and and, uh, missions also and intercultural ministry and so on and so forth. So I got a master of arts in global leadership. And then right now, uh, God willing, I am at the very end of my um, doctorate in uh, intercultural education. And right now it's an EDD. The program's actually transitioning to be a PhD in the next uh, six months. So it looks like I'm going to end up with a PhD in intercultural education. Um, And as part of that, my research focus is on gospel-centered missional ecclesiology, which is part of why we're talking about this today, I think. So Mm. that's my educational world. Cool. And yeah, just quickly, your ministry background. A ministry background, I just run, I've had a, I had a, I mean, I'm only 39. Uh, so I've been saved just about 20 years. And, um, but something that's been funny for me is I feel like I've had a broad range of experience in a punctuated amount of time, you know? So, um, the, the, the spectrum runs from, uh, call, like youth ministry leadership, college ministry leadership, and then um, worship pastor was my first thing I was paid to do in an EV free church as part of ministry, uh, assistant pastor, 
uh, associate pastor and then ultimately senior pastor of a couple churches, um, church planter here in the States. Um, I've served as a cross-cultural missionary in Hungary, where you served, obviously done a lot of different short-term types of things in that regard as well. And uh, Bible college instructor in the, in the States, also abroad in Hungary and such. Um, yeah. And, and then most recently at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, um, I've been, a, I served as the executive director of discipleship and mobilization, which just meant I was basically the overseer of all the ministries and the ministry leaders at the church there. And then um, also for the past eight years, this is the other side of what I still do. I, I started as the content director of calvarychapel.com in 2013. And um, I've been the, uh, the director of that for several years and am the executive director of Calvary Global Network since uh, Brian Broderson decided to go forward with that vision. He asked me early on to help kind of be his architectural counterpart to pull together the infrastructure and help clarify the mission, vision, and values and strategies of what we're doing with that. So that's my world around that today is the CGN side. I, I was able to say goodbye with a blessing to my Costa Mesa local church emphasis a few months ago. And so right now, today, that's what I do as the executive director of Calvary Global Network. Cool. Wow, that's a lot. So let's dive right into the topic for today. Um, we're talking about missional ecclesiology. Maybe you could just break that down, help our listeners understand what that is, like put some handles on it. Sure, I'll do my best. So yeah, missional is one of those trendy terms of the last like 15 years, isn't it too? And everybody wants to attach it to everything. But, you know, I think for me, one one way to think about missional ecclesiology specifically, and again, ecclesiology, the study of the church is what we're talking about. Um, I think of it as, I think it'd be fair to say it's a non-traditional approach to understanding the nature and the purpose of the church uh, that focuses specifically on understanding the nature and purpose of the church within the context of what's referred to as the missio dei or the mission of God. And so um, that'd be like the nerd thing. And I can flesh out Wherever you want to go with that, we can flesh out what do I mean by the Missio Day? Where does the church play into that? Whatever you want to do. Yeah. And just because the nature of this podcast is we're trying to take theological concepts and like put them where people can reach them in a sense. So maybe just hash out what some of those yeah. things mean and, and what does that actually look like on a on a Monday, right? Like what does that yeah. mean like in a every week, weekday type thing? Yeah. So I think I guess on the one side, there's um there's kind of understanding like the big macro picture, like what do we mean by the church as a missional thing, so to speak? And then where it comes to Monday and the day-to-day for the stay-at-home mom and the dad and the whatever kind of normal humans beings are going to be listening to this, that's more where you get into kind of a subset of the conversation, which is on missional Christianity or like missional living and so on. And so to, I guess on the one side, thinking about just the church as a missional thing, um, but it's basically what we're saying is the church gets its identity and its purpose from what God is already doing before the church ever exists. And what God is doing is mission. And this is just kind of gives you the big uh, aerial view of the the central message of the Bible. So Bible starts with uh, eternity past and then creation. God creates a perfect world. And uh, into that world, he puts mankind as chief of his creation to have a relationship with. That relationship is broken through sin. And what God does in response and also in a preordained plan to 
that is he is going on mission. And so instead of choosing to just wad up the, the creation he has made and, and destroy mankind, he makes this promise that he's going to send the seed of the woman into the world to remove the curse and, and bring unity again and all of this. And what I see in, uh, as I look at the Bible, is that the the entire rest of the scripture from Genesis 3.15 on is about telling the story about how God made good on his promise to bring the seed of the woman into the world, to redeem mankind, and to transform everything that went wrong in, in, in our partnership with the devil uh, in the fall. And so, as you move forward, you know, God's choice, he's, he chooses a man named Abraham, and he makes that man this big dysfunctional family. And from that big dysfunctional family, he makes this big dysfunctional functional people group. And from that people group, he makes a nation as he gives them land and laws and leadership. And, and part of what he does through that nation is he makes them this huge billboard about what it's going to look like when that seed of the woman finally shows up on the scene in accordance with the mission of God. And so you have the prophets telling you where the seed is going to be born and he's going to be called Emmanuel and all these messianic types of things going on. And then as you fast forward through the scripture, you show up in the New Testament and Jesus shows up and and everything that he does, it fulfills these prophetic promised billboards about what it would look like when the one who fulfills the mission of God shows up on the scene. So he comes and at the center of everything that Jesus does, and this is why I think it's important. We don't want to just be missional ecclesiology focused. We want to have a gospel-centered missional ecclesiology because Jesus did a whole bunch of things, right? He's healing people. He's doing a lot of stuff to fulfill these promises about who he would be in accordance with God's mission. But there are three acts that are the center of the center of the, the things that Jesus did. And I, I refer to these as the gospel acts of Jesus. And that is uh, essentially he lives a perfect life that we could never live. Uh, as uh, the perfect man living a perfect life on behalf of sinful people. He dies the death that we deserve to die, and he rises from the dead, which we could never do. And that perfect life, perfect death, perfect resurrection becomes the thing that makes it possible for God to actualize, to really fulfill this mission that he's on, to renew everything in the cosmos. And so, out of that, there's actually a great summary verse in Ephesians 1.10, I think is a great summary of the Missio Dei. Paul writing there said that it was God's plan to unite all things in Jesus or to renew all things in Jesus and in all things in heaven and on earth under him. And so that's why I see as a summary of what's happening. Christ comes, he makes it possible through these gospel acts. He ascends into heaven, he pours out the Holy Spirit, and that begins this thing called the church age that moves along. And, and, and what I, this is where, so in terms of a missional ecclesiology, what is the nature and purpose of the church as it relates to God's mission? What you see at this stage is that the church is first the consequence of God's mission. So the church, we, as the people of God, we don't exist if God hadn't already been fulfilling this mission that culminates in Christ throughout the ages. And so he creates this spirit born people on the day of Pentecost, or however you want to see that when Christ descends, he pours out the spirit, suddenly the people of God are born anew, made spiritually alive, and we become his witnesses and representation on the earth to continue this, this ministry and this mission that Jesus had been fulfilling in his own life, but rooted on the foundation of those gospel acts. And so I won't go on and on for much longer, but 
that I think that's important. So God is on this mission. It's culminating in Christ and his gospel acts. He creates the church out of that. We become the consequence of his missional or missionary activity, but then we become the catalyst, the continuers, the conduit of that mission as we go forth now by the power of the spirit, preaching the gospel that Jesus preached, living a gospel shaped life where we die for our enemies and so on and so forth for the glory of God as he did. And that continues us on to the end of the age where I would look at places like Revelation 21 and you see this new heaven and the new earth. And finally, by God's work and his power and then his direct intervention at the end of of his plans for this renewal act, um, you see this renewed heaven and earth where there's no death and there's no tears and there's no causes of any of these types of things. And so that's that's kind of that's an attempt at summarizing what I would see as. Um, looking at the church in a missional lens. And what that shows you is like, even in some of the practical conversations, a lot of times we talk about, well, what's the mission of the church? And that's not a bad conversation, but it's not the first conversation. It's not so, like I've heard Ed Stetzer say this a lot, it's not so much that the church has a mission that's primary, it's that God's mission has a church. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of the, the difference in paradigm when thinking of church from a missional perspective. So hopefully that's helpful, but I'm going to shut up so you can direct us. No, that was really good. And I do have some, some follow-up questions on that, but um, yeah, yeah. I, w- I read a, a couple of quotes. You know, there's a guy named David Bosch. He's a African, South African theologian. He summarizes it like this. He says, mission is not primarily an activity of the church, but an attribute of God. And so what this equates to in a sense is that it's not that the church has a missions department, right? Missions isn't necessarily something that the church does or that the church sends. It's not the church sending, it's God has sent the church. And I loved what you said there, that we are a product of the mission of God, but also an instrument of God's mission moving mm-hmm. forward. And yeah, it's a really important, like I guess, shift in thinking. So you had mentioned the term non-traditional early on, and I just wanted mm-hmm. to tease that out because I think that uh, that could be maybe misunderstood by somebody and saying like, this is like a new thing, newfangled thing. Like it's a, uh, maybe like a fad that, um, mm-hmm. that is going on. Um, at the one hand, what do you mean by non-traditional? And then I guess my follow-up or where I'm trying to go with that is, do you think this is a return to the essence of what the church was meant to be or called to be by Jesus? Or do you think this is just like a, a newfangled fad? Yeah, it's not a fad. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say it's it's what you said at the end. I, I see more of of a returning, almost a reformation in some sense. I mean, a lot of people don't know. Like, let's just think about that that slogan of uh, the Reformation. Like, it, it wasn't like let's just be reformed. You know, the true slogan of the Reformation was re- "Once reformed, always reforming." And I think that there's this there's this constant need on an individual level and on a corporate level, if you want to think of it that way, in a global church level for us to constantly be dragging what has become uh, just assumed back to the scripture afresh and back to the spirit and asking, is this well? Is this full? Is this most helpful in in our understanding and our praxis and all of these things? And so, I think that the missional church conversation over the last well, I mean, it's intensified over the last 20 years. It's been going on for 50 plus years in, in another technical academic sense. But I see it as as, as a needed 
element of kind of reformation today in that sense. And so I do think what what's happening in that process is we are getting back to a more essential and even primal vision of the church as it is reflected in the New Testament. And when I say non-traditional, it's not that it wasn't there or it's not in the scriptures. And so we're coming up with something new. What I would see it as is, no, it, it is there in the scriptures, but through the ages of church, as we know it, there have become certain emphases. A lot of them are culturally driven. They become traditionally driven in their own sense, and they become deeply rooted for long enough that now to talk about some of these more primal, essential pieces of the church as it is in scripture feels like we're doing something new. And in that sense, it's just because it's not the common way we do this in most church traditions as I would see it today. So it's not really new. It's really old, but it feels new because it's not the common way we've been talking about it for quite some time in many of our traditions. Does that help? Yeah, man, that's stirring up so many thoughts that I have just from my time as a missionary and what drew me to Calvary Chapel and their way of doing missions. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about Mm -hmm. some things that happened to me, even as a missionary, some ways of thinking that shifted as I began to think about What's funny is that I was in an area which I was in a movement that was doing missional ecclesiology, but mm-hmm. and yet even the even understanding it more deeply helped shape my thinking about church. But before we do that, I do want to ask you this question: that um, you know, I just I encounter people all the time, and I, and I always have during my years as a pastor. Let me think: I have been a pastor now for I just did the math the other day like 16 years or something kind of, kind of wild. Um, But in my time as a pastor, you know, especially in the U S it's been like, I noticed that some people are super down on the church. Right. And they'll just be like, I want to be a Christian church is dumb. Uh, I just love Jesus. Maybe I go to church sometimes because I guess I probably ought to, but I'm not into it. And probably even when I was a missionary in Hungary, I worked with some other missionaries from a parachurch organization. We were good friends. And one time we were sitting in his living room and he tells me, he says to me, church is a necessary evil. And I'm like, whoa. I was just wanted to dodge the lightning bolt that I felt was going to come down. I totally disagree. And I have a lot of reasons for disagreeing, but I want to ask you, why do you think it is that people feel this way? And do you think it's related to the church not fulfilling its missional mandate? Um, So maybe hash out some of those thoughts and, and help us sort them out. Yeah. I, I do think that some of that is, has to do with confusion that has come about that exists in blind spots in our understanding of the church about what the real essence, essential transcultural elements of being church are versus some of the traditions that have just come up. So a a phrase I latched onto some years ago is this idea that the most dangerous things, the most dangerous ideas that we have are the things that go without being said. Oh, it just goes without being said. So if I say church, there's a million things that come to somebody's mind automatically that just goes without being said. If I say, I'm going to plant a church, there's a million things that come to people's minds. Oh, well, that means a, a preview group and a, and, a, and a thing and a building and a brand and a, and a nonprofit corporation. There's, there's all these assumptions that come in. And I think some of this disenchantment that, that we have, that I think you're talking about, does come from in um, 
kind of a broad uh, challenge that we have for not even recognizing the assumptions that we have and whether or not they're really essential or not. And so they think that's a piece of it. The other part of it is, I do think has to do with, um, there's a legitimate side to uh, the, uh, the way that leadership in some ways behaves, or, you know, we all know this, there's a thousand church scandals and everything else that that we've witnessed. And we attach these issues of conduct to particular expressions of the church. And that makes us conclude that there's not only something wrong with the people and the conduct in the, in the expression of church, but it's just the expression of church itself. That must be the problem. And I think those are actually complicated conversations. I don't think there's just a simple way to, to, um, to uh, say this is how one should respond. I think it's very situational and case by case. But what I would say is I am, I'm probably of, of our friends, Nick, um, I'm probably much more willing to let go of a whole bunch of stuff that maybe many of us assume should just be a part of church. Um, And at the same time, I share your concern about what I would say is an immature response to what are often Real, real observations. And I think that that immature, I call it like the teenage rebellion response. Like I see something I don't like, or somebody was mean to me at this expression of church. And as a way of kind of self-justifying, and I think even self-righteousness, we not only write off that person and we write off that particular local church, but we just say, all local churches are stupid and I'm out, you know? And uh, what I see in that is a difficult case because I want to I don't want to look at their behavior and decide that their observations are wrong, but I also don't want to look at their observations and justify that kind of behavior and response. I think it's a two, two-sided thing. Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yes. Uh, and going back to something you said earlier, you know, the idea, the fundamental idea of missional ecclesiology is that the church is a product of the mission of God and it is a, a tool and catalyst for the mission of God moving forward. And I think that when the church exists, you know, kind of for its own self propagation or self, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Perseverance or something like that. I think that is, um, yeah, here, I'll give you one thing I read earlier. It said that in a missional ecclesiology, the church as a whole does not exist to serve its own aims or even to guarantee its own survival, right? It's, it wholly exists to be poured out and emptied for the sake of the world. Um, you know, and Jürgen Moltmann has some great uh, stuff on that too. He said, it's not that the church has a mission, but in reverse, the, the mission of Christ creates a church. And and I think that when we understand it in that way and understand the role of the church, I think what people actually oftentimes rebel against is that is that idea is that when the church begins to exist for its own, you know, a local congregation, let's say, exists for its own survival to serve its own aims, I think that's very off-putting and people wonder what is even the point of this? Like, yeah. And so when you get back to a missional ecclesiology, which you said, in a way it's non-traditional, but in another way, it's the most traditional in the sense that it reflects the New Testament vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's actually what's compelling. And, mm-hmm. and that brings me to what I wanted to say anecdotally. So here's my, my story, right? I 
um, moved to, well, actually before I moved there, I, I was going to a large church in Colorado in Wheat Ridge. I didn't know that it was a Calvary Chapel. I never heard of Calvary Chapel before. So I, I go to this conference uh, at an invitation. I'm like, oh, okay. So this is like a whole group of churches, but what they were doing all over Europe is they were planting churches and there were like missionaries there. Now in my mind, I had gone on like one mission trip right before this. And I had seen like, okay, what do missionaries do? I think they just like hand out things to needy people. Maybe they do projects and things like this in the community. Mm-hmm. I didn't really understand. And then I went there and their, their mission was to start churches and then use the church as the hub for discipleship and evangelism for an entire city or region. And I'm like, oh my gosh, isn't that actually what is in the book of Acts? I'm like, that's something I could get on board with because here's the other thing. As my time as a missionary, I saw a lot of mission groups who did different things. And I feel like a lot of the parachurch organizations, this is where they missed it, is that they they miss the fact that the church, by God's design, is the hub for mission, is the catalyst for mission, and is the center for discipleship. In other words, um, I loved what Calvary Chapel did in that they weren't like, we need to create a discipleship ministry. No, they were like, we need to, we need to proliferate churches to disciple people in the whole counsel of God's word. And I got to say, I came out of that experience loving the church. And so it was very hard for me to understand people who, who did not love the church. Yeah. And I think that part of what we're talking about is where the mission of God, um, intersects with this idea that we are first the consequence of God's mission, his missionary work, and then we're the catalyst. So then the question is, well, how do we catalyze? What what are the core things that God has given to us to be focused on so that we can catalyze his mission as by his power in the ways that he wants? And this gets right down to the nitty gritty, certainly for church leaders and church ministry, people who are starting church ministries, leading them. There's often that question of what is our mission? As if we all have different missions, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and my conviction, and this kind of annoys people, I think sometimes, but I believe every local church, no matter where you are in the world, has the exact same mission. We might say it differently because of the context we're in. It could be um, strategically engaged in a bit differently, maybe radically differently, but at its core, we have the same mission and we have the same focus areas of mission. And I think it's what you're talking about. So where I look to find this is um, uh, the Great Commission texts in the New Testament. I think there are at least five. Some would say there's more, but I look at the ends of the four gospels and then the first chapter of Acts. And I, I think that if you, there's a lot that's being said in those texts, but if you could just kind of boil some things down, I think you can distill it down to what I call the Great Commission pillars. And one of them is Mark uh, 15, 16, go and proclaim the gospel to every creature. So that's a very clear thing. Jesus is like, I've been doing it. Now you're going to go do it by the spirit. Well, what are we going to do, Jesus? You are going to go proclaim this gospel, tell this good news to every creature. Cool. Got it. Matthew's emphasis is on the making of disciples, these whole life followers of Jesus who follow in his footsteps as his spiritual apprentice. That's how I think of a disciple. So he says, make disciples of all the people groups of the world that are there. So you've got this gospel proclamation, this disciple making, and you've got the book of Acts, which is, I think, a really important and overlooked one because it's, it helps us in our 
functionalism in, in the West, especially, but remember there, it, Jesus talks about how we were going to be his witnesses. And again, not so much as an activity, but as the outcome of this transformation that's happening in us, as we follow him as his people, as his disciples, we just become a witness to the life of God, to the fact that the things he, Jesus said about himself are real, that what the scripture says about him is real too. So I see that as, as three pieces we are proclaiming the gospel. We are making disciples, but we're letting God transform us as the people of God and letting that speak for itself into the world. And then, of course, as you follow through the book of Acts, as you know, Nick, the way that the early church, the primal church, if you will, applied their commitment to these ways of advancing God's mission is they went and started local congregations. And it was evangelism and discipleship that results in churches all over the place that were becoming a witness in the first century world. And so, yeah, I think that 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 is to me, that's what part of what we got to recover is get away from this idea that we got to search for some unique mission out there. That's the mission. And if you can get that clear, then you can ask, but what does it look like in my context and do that extra work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just another anecdote. When I first came to this church here, I, um, part of the reason why I came, so I was in Hungary, I was there for 10 years and I spoke Hungarian. I really had, um, really strong conviction that we needed more ministers out there. And so I felt confused a bit when I felt that God was calling us here to the U S but it was actually Ed Stetzer mm-hmm. in his book. Uh, uh, what is he, what was it called? Uh, missional planting missional churches. And yeah. um, mm-hmm. I, so I read it um, looking for actually help on planting churches in Hungary. Cause we, we had planned, we had started a second church plant at that time. And yeah. so as I was reading it, though, I just kind of really came to this conviction, which is one of his main points in the book, is that mission is not just something that takes place somewhere else. I think that that's been the kind of kind of way that in recent centuries, the word mission has been used a lot in the Western Protestant church. It's like mission is something that takes place somewhere else where people are generally poorer than you. And I think it's almost funny, even if you look at this, this mentality exists outside the United States as well. It's not just a, maybe it is slightly imperialistic, influenced by imperialism, but it's not, um, not purely because look, it would always be like this in Hungary or like, let's say Austria, Austria looked at Hungary as a mission field. Hungary looked at like Romania as a mission field. Romania looked at like (laughs) Moldova as a mission field. Moldova looked at like Albania and Albania looked at. I don't know, like the Central African Republic. And there's, or there's probably so much so much ethnocentrism in this, you know, like I know. that we don't detect. We just look for who's a little lesser than us in our opinion, you know. Not, and I know I just offended everybody and all of our friends who live in all these places. The Americans are the worst. We think everyone's down the stream from us, you know. I know. But yeah. But I, I do remember this and and uh, I don't want to again, I'm just trying to tease out some concept like some underlying things yeah. in our minds. I remember I took a group from our church in Hungary to do, we would go out and do like um, outreach projects in our town and in surrounding villages. And many of those villages were very poor, but then we went one time I took them to do an outreach in the Hungarian speaking part of Ukraine. And one of the guys um, and mature solid believer, he just tells me, thanks for bringing us here. This really feels like a mission trip. And I'm like, why these people, why? Because they're poor. Like, do you understand that one of the most atheistic countries in the world is Sweden, right? Like, are we sending missionaries to Sweden? Are we, are we 
putting effort into sending people to the Czech Republic, you know, but I mean, it's almost like if you, and, and okay. On the other hand, one of the most evangelically saturated places on earth is sub-Saharan Africa. And yet it's almost more acceptable in some circles to say, I'm going as a missionary to sub-Saharan Africa than it is. I'm going to uh, Stockholm. So um, clearly spiritual need isn't defined uh, by economic, you know, well-being. So, yeah. So anyway, I end up uh, being really uh, surprised by something I learned through Ed Setzer's book. And that was just that the mission field is the whole world, right? Like John 3.16, he gave his son for the world. That's the mission field. Now, there are also culturally cultural boundaries, you know, national boundaries, et cetera. And those matter. But I just realized that like uh, here in, we're in Boulder County um, and man, I got to tell you, this is a legit mission field. Like I remember I brought my wife here and she's like, I don't want to leave the mission field to go to the United States. And we spent a week in Boulder and she was like, okay, I get it. That's a mission field, right? Like mm-hmm. I, in, in some ways, I would say there was more openness to the gospel in Hungary than there is in Boulder County. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say in some ways, I'd say in, in most ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. And I remember when I came here to the church, uh, we were setting up an online thing when I first arrived and they said, hey, should we set up a missions mm-hmm. department? And I said, absolutely not because that communicates the wrong thing. That communicates yeah. that missions is a subset of what the church does. It's a hobby that some people have. And I said, no, the church exists on mission like a fire exists by burning. That's a famous mm-hmm. ML Brunner quote. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 there, I agree. And I, I think all that's great. And there is, this is one of those areas of clarification that I think we just have to work at all the time is, you know, we're working with, again, what goes without being said, somebody says mm-hmm. missional and most of us probably think missions like in a traditional from, from the, from the West to the rest, you know, like that's mm-hmm. what it is. And we're, and it's, it's about going to a nation, not a people group. It's about going where you don't live. It's about going somewhere that's poor. And, uh, and so there, I do think it, it's important. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, n- not the only way, but one way you could break down just for practical uh, ways of thinking about the the differences in what we're talking about with missions and missional and so on. And so one of the things I think is, is core when you start getting out of just talking about this big picture idea of the church as a part of God's mission, and you want to get down to the daily thing. Okay. Um, One of the things I think that is core about missional thinking is that I think we need to recover is that this truth that the church is a movement of people not an institution. The church is a movement of people. We are a global movement of people spiritually unified by the Holy Spirit and our commitment to the person of Jesus and his gospel. That's what the essence and the it's, it's ontology. These are being types of statements about our nature. That's what the church is. Now, the church expresses itself in all kinds of different institutions and 501c3s and organizations and so on and so forth. But that's none of those things are what the church is. Those are things that the church does to try and carry out its mission practically in response to participating in God's mission. So anyway, like I think part of this is we have to get recover that idea that 
if you can do that, that you see yourself, the church is a movement and hey, I'm part of that movement, then you can get to this idea that wherever you are is where you are sent. You are, I, I look at this in, a, I think in Acts, um, is it Acts 17, 26 and 27, and uh, Paul saying that God has determined the times that we would live and the places we would live so that we would seek him and find him. And, and, and he's saying like, where you live is not an accident. Where you live, even if you move someplace during the course of your life by what you feel are your free decisions, in some way, I believe that God superintends these things to happen in our life because for all of our purposes, he has a greater purpose about the role we're playing in his mission. And so as Christians, we got to see like, look, we are the church and yeah, we can, we gather and we do that stuff and we do practical things and all that. But wherever I am, I is part of God's and his mission for me. And so I tell people, where were, where are you sent? You want to know where your, your mission is? Ask where you're sent. Are you married? Well, that's a place you're sent. Do you have kids? That's a place that you're sent. Do you have a neighbor? Do you share a wall with somebody? That's a place you're sent. Do you have a coffee shop where you see a barista every day before you go to work? That is a place that you're sent because you're the movement of God. You are the mission of God. And so... I think that's really important. And then, so if I could just real quick, like digress on this, like give you a couple technical ideas. So when I think missions, this is the way I break it down. Mission, missions, missional. To me, I think when I hear mission, I hear the mission of God, that God is on a mission to renew all things in heaven and earth through the person and work of Jesus Christ, these gospel acts, life, death, and resurrection. That to me is mission. When I think of missions, I, I would, I do tend to think of like this kind of traditional idea. So what I wrote in this booklet I wrote for Calvary Costa Mesa is that missions refers to people engaging in God's mission by doing evangelism, disciple making and church planning among unreached peoples, wherever they happen to be. And so again, I'm trying, part of what I'm trying to do is get out of the geographical thing there. And, but this relates to the great commission, make disciples where of all the peoples, so the, by by nature, that implies we have to be looking around the world and asking where people exist who don't have the mission of God being worked out among them. And we need to be going and making disciples and planning and preaching the gospel among them. And just the natural byproduct of that is you get what we think of as traditional missions, where you're going from one place to another to do that. And that is still important because there are still millions of people groups around the world who don't have a witness for the gospel. So we have to still maintain that. But I think what we've often lost, maybe to some of your points, is we think if we're doing that, then that's it. That's what missions is. And we're missing this other piece that, look, that's great. We need to send people to do that. We, you know, Nick's, the Nick Katie's of the world need to be sent to go to do, and that's amazing. But while you're doing that, you tomorrow, when your mailman shows up, are on a mission, and you are God's missional people of movement. And every single day and every space you occupy, God has a mission. You are part of this mission that God is on. And uh, so I, I just, I do think that's incredibly important. And if I could just, well, now I'll just shut up. I'll just calm down because I'm just going off here. But yeah, I do think that's super important. Missions, as we have typically understood it, need to continue, but we have to recover our sentness as a people of God, wherever we are, whether you ever leave your hometown or not, uh -huh. you are on mission for the gospel of Christ, wherever you are. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to bring up with you was, do you think that missional ecclesiology can contradict or detract from the idea of foreign missions? I think you answered that pretty pretty succinctly. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, the simple thing is I would just say no. I think that missions in the traditional sense is an outflow of a proper understanding of us as the people of God being on mission wherever we are. Some of us, that's going to mean you have kind of an apostolic calling where you need to go, but it, that's going to be the exception. The rest of us still have an apostolic calling as our identity of the church to be. So I think it works together. It starts with us as a sent people, and then it works out into some of us being sent around the world to the least reached. Yeah. I remember being a missionary and, you know, we would come back every year, sometimes two years and, you know, tour around, visit lots of churches and speak. And, you know, sometimes you meet people and they, they would always say this thing like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a missionary too. Like I'm a missionary in my hometown. And mm-hmm. I would be like, um, yeah, I'm really glad that you understand that you're sent by God into your hometown. But, yeah. and yet I would feel that in a way that it was detracting from or minimizing. Sure. For uh, sure. Mm-hmm. And may, maybe it was just me and maybe not, but I did. And I, I kind of try to keep that in our church. Like on the one hand, I tell people, Hey, we're sent, but we also, these missionaries, right? Like these are people who have left house and home uh, to go on the mission of God. And it's not like they feel that they've, they're sacrificing a ton and they feel bad about it. But I think that we should understand that there's something slightly different about going to a foreign context uh, as a foreigner on a mission. Um, there's, there's some weight to that. And I think that we yeah. shouldn't diminish it. So that that's kind of the balance. I think that I, I try to work out in my mind, even as you're talking about that. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. And I think the the heart of what those two different people you're describing needs to be the same, but one has a very different set of practical sacrifices and what they're doing. And, and I would say even calling. And so this is one of the reasons I actually like the word missional, because it gives us a way to talk about the rest of us that maintains our mission identity as the people of God, even if you just live where you've always lived, while not um, minimizing or disrespecting even this other very unique thing. And I think part of this is just language, isn't it? You know, a lot of people don't realize that even the word missionary, I mean, you're not going to find that in the Bible, but if you go through the transliteration process and you work backward, you find uh, the term apostolos in uh, Greek, and then the Latin equivalent of that missionem, And then the English transliteration of that Latin word is where we get missionary. So when we use the word missionary, we are actually saying apostle. It's just transliterated through a few different things. And that really bugs people that want to say apostles Mm. aren't for today. (laughs) But, um, But so for me, I look at that and I say, well, no, of course, we would never say everyone's a missionary because that would be like saying everyone is an apostle and only some of us have that gift we're calling of, of apostleship, the sent one in such a way. And so I think we want to maintain that term to be used for those who are specifically called to go out to the least reach wherever they happen to be. And that means moving away from their home culture and context and crossing those kinds of boundaries. But then we want to have this other category that's very much in accord with them, same heart, same mission, same mindset, that is for the rest of us. We are still a missional people right where we are, and it's all part of it. 
Right on. So two final questions for you, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, number one, what is your area of greatest concern, or what do you think is the area of greatest concern in ecclesiology today? Okay, yeah. So um, for me, uh, what I've kind of latched onto, I mean, it's, it's sort of everything we're talking about, but one of the things that I think is least helpful in common conversations about the church, or it's maybe this is a, it's an, it's an assumption that I think reveals itself in our conversation about church that I'm not sure we're, we are uh, appreciating enough in terms of its potential impact. And that is um, confusing the institutional expressions of church that we just have by tradition with the essence of the church. And so what I mean by that is, again, most people use, use the word church. Just Let's just take America. I'm down here in California. Um, if somebody says church, they think a few things. They think building. They think brand. You know what? It's Rock Harbor, whatever. You know, so building, brand, program, Sunday-centric gatherings, and what they may or may not know is all of that is an expression of a nonprofit 501c3 charitable organization, right? And again, even when we go to plant a church, hey, I'm, I'm, my name's Nick. Uh, cool, Nick, what's God's doing in your life? I'm called to plant a church. Oh, cool, you're called to plant a church. What I think is Nick is going to go out and he's, uh, he's going to try to get people to come together at a building that has programs that has a brand attached to it that is undergirded by a nonprofit corporation. And what I want to say, again, back to our, let's not be immature about this thing, is that that is not bad. It's not bad to express the local church that way. But what I'm also saying is you could remove every single piece of what I just said, and the actual local church would not be harmed in one single instant. And I think that that's important to understand because, again, we need, we are the people, we are the church, we do need to gather, but it's a far jump from that notion to everything else that I just talked about. And I do think that people like um, uh, Alan Hirsch are pointing this out well these days and has been for the last uh, number of years, like the way I would summarize this is that expression of church, it's not theologically necessary. And for many people in, and I think large demographics of society, it's missiologically ineffective as well. It's becoming more and more so that model of church. And so I'm not bringing that up to say, let's burn down the institutional churches. I'm saying, I'm bringing it up to say, I think it's a conversation we need to keep having to make sure that what we categorize as truly essential to being the people of God in a place is really what we're emphasizing. Because if, if we're confusing non-essentials with essentials, then our mission gets off. We can be, we can tie our hands up in creativity more than we need to. And I'll just give you just a quick example, if I could, about I, I think that the pandemic really revealed this. You know, when where I'm at in California. What were the threats? We're going to stop you from gathering at that building. We're going to take away your 501c3 status. We're going to sue this organization. You know, uh, that, these were our great fears. And what was our obsession? How can we get back to our big programs and our gatherings on Sunday mornings and all of these things? What I think that both of those things showed about the cultures 
assumed definition of church and even the church itself is that we actually think all of these institutional pieces are much more the nature of the church than they actually are. And I think it causes us to fight the wrong battles. I think it causes us to have the wrong fears. I think it causes us to create unnecessary barriers to other people being brought into church and so on and so forth. And so what I think that comes out of is the fact that just in the West, we have a super functionalist culture. To us, you are what you do and what you do determines your worth. And and I'll, I'll stop here with this, but if you if you want it to be clear to you that that's also how we think of the church, the church is what it does instead of the church is this spiritual being, this community. Um, look, go to your shelves or your internet your, and look up your top 10 favorite systematic theologians and, and find their section on ecclesiology or find your top 10 churches state uh, statement of faith about how they define the church And what they're pretty much all likely to say is they'll make one statement about being, in essence. They'll say the church is the people of God, and then they will jump to a laundry list of functions that worships, that preaches, that teaches, that gathers, that evangelizes, that does whatever. And so my my feeling is that, particularly as Westerners in a very functionalistic culture, that is so ingrained in us to define value by what is done that we bring it to the church. And then it really brings in this full expression and our emphasis on church as an institution. And my personal opinion is that I think that's restricting us from being as effective and even being transformed as humans in a lot of ways that we would like to see happen. That's good. That was actually my second question. So you led into, I was going to ask, you know, what, what has pandemic revealed about us? I think you made that, that really clear. So that's good. Yeah. Kellen, any final thoughts on this subject for people, maybe any ways that they can follow up with you or with this subject? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I think with me, you can find me at calvaryglobalnetwork.com. That's <laughs> a good place to see what's going on with me. We're going to, you and I, as you know, we're going to be launching the new Mission and Methods podcast coming up for CGN as well, the new season of that. So any of the CGN, calvarychapel.com platforms, you can find more about me or connect to me in some way if that's needed. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a million, I don't know, do you do show notes, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we put together a little bibliography of sources that people could dive into if they want to test my heresy with some of this. (laughs) And and that would be good. Um, And then just, you know, closing thoughts again, I think to me, I think just the big need of the hour is us to just really, again, drag all of our assumptions about what church is and what mission is back to the scriptures. You know, deconstruction is this big thing and deconstruction in one sense is horrible, but there's another sense in which I think the Bible commands us to constantly deconstruct ourselves. The problem is we're supposed to deconstruct with the Bible and with the Holy Spirit and with the people of God, not on our own in a corner with our favorite uh, philosopher or pop singer, you know? (laughs) So I would just say that is the need of the hour related to these sayings. Let's drag all this, these assumptions even if you think it's crazy, let's just drag these assumptions back to the Bible, back to scripture in conversation with Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus with all that they have. And let's let scripture deconstruct these things and try to get back to that simplicity, that primal thing of what Christ has revealed about himself, 
his mission and our foundational transcultural things that we're supposed to have about us as we're participating in that. And then let that be a, a, a cipher, let it be um, a sifting tool for everything else that we've been trying to do in the name of mission and being on mission with Jesus. And, uh, and I would just say the last thing is let's, let's pray for faith and trust him because I think as we do that, it's not just going to be little adjustments that we have to make. It's going to be big adjustments and how, and that we have to, but that we get to make on the real adventure of really following Jesus and his mission for today. So mm. if that can be an encouragement, we are the mission, we are the, the church's movement. That's who we are. Yeah. There you go. That's great. Yeah. So check out the show notes and they're going to be in two places. One will be on your podcast app, just in the description. We'll have links as well in those show notes. You can click on those links. Um, also, I post the show notes and even a, a little bit like more expanded uh, description on the text version of Theology for the People, which is the blog. And that's found at nickkd.org. So N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y. .org. If you've been blessed by this, really ask that you would share it with others, get the word out. And it also helps us if you leave a rating and review, particularly on the uh, Apple podcast store. If you leave a written review, that is like gold for uh, the algorithm. So it would really help us and it would help other people find this content. If you found it helpful, that would mean a lot to me. And um, thank you, Kellen, for being with us. And I'll be with you again next time on the Theology for the People podcast. God bless you.